0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter thirteen. Hebrews chapter thirteen. We come to the last chapter in this book. This book's been like an old friend for the last year plus. It's going to seem kind of funny to end it. We won't end it today, but we will soon. And uh, I will miss Hebrews. I have. Uh, it's been fun being in this book every day of the week for me getting ready for Sunday and preparing what God has said through that book to bring to you on Sunday morning uh, and, and so I will miss it but I, I, as I read it as I came to this 13th chapter it was an interesting it's an interesting ending you know you you wonder what would, a, what would an apostle or what would a, what would a biblical writer do as he draws near to the end of a, of a letter or a sermon uh, to a group of people that he loves dearly and whom he has watched suffer greatly because of their faith and whom he has seen tempted to turn back from Christ and back to Judaism, uh, back to a religion that no longer could satisfy because the fulfillment had come in Christ, And yet because of persecution and because of hatred and because people were coming against them, they were were tempted to say it's just not worth it. In this world, it's just not worth it. It's, It's a struggle to be a believer. What would a writer say to a group of people like that? Well, all through this book, he's made it clear that the truth of the whole matter is is that Jesus Christ is above all that Jesus Christ is greater and higher and more powerful and more worthy of our worship than anything else is. I mean, he's made that clear. That's why I entitled the whole series, Christ above all. Because the writer is taking that which has passed away in the old covenant and, 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 and shown how in Christ all of that has been fulfilled. So he is the greater of the uh, between he and Moses, he is the greater. His covenant is greater than Moses' covenant. The grace is greater than the law. And on and on and on you can see as this writer has done, he has given us a firm theological basis. He's talked deep things. He's talked about coming to a to a new mountain that, that there was the mountain of Sinai, but now we come to the mountain of Zion, we come to one that has been fulfilled. The, the Mount, Mount Sinai was one that was untouchable, that was was fearful that you shied away from. but Mount Zion is one you draw near to because Christ is the Lord of Mount Zion, and we are his people, adopted into his family we 've been made a part of the family of God i mean it 's a, it's a glorious thing to see how he has built that whole understanding of the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of man or even the kingdom of religion, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, above all and superior to all. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to see how he's drawn that. In that last chapter we looked at, he got fairly practical when he said in in chapter 12, verse 1, he said, you know, lay aside every encumbrance and lay aside every sin that easily entangles us and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I mean, he's beginning to draw this great theological masterpiece down to a practical nature when he says, Now, on the basis of who Christ is, and on the basis of what Christ has done, now run the race. Run with endurance. Run without giving up. Fix your eyes on Christ. Lay aside sin. Lay aside every encumbrance, everything that would would seem seem to tangle you up. And he starts into this practical understanding of, of the gospel working itself out in a man or a woman's life and ultimately that's where you have to come theology is great and theology is important but it's only as important as it steers us to godliness just to have a theological understanding can be the biggest waste of time in all the world if it doesn't affect your life Uh, having a theological understanding can puff up and make you proud if it doesn't bring you to humility before God and brokenness before God and recognizing, God, you have done everything. You are the one that is superior. You are the one that is above all things. I am your servant. I am your doulos. I am your slave because of the gospel. And I joyously received that title of slave, a title that is anathema in the world, both in the biblical writer's world and in our day. The word slave is a demeaning name. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a title that says, oh no, we don't ever want to be a slave. But Paul says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus, and that slavery has set me free. Set me free more than anything ever could. And so the writer says, listen, all the theology in the world, if it, doesn't, is that if it doesn't humble you in the presence of God, if it doesn't bring you before him and say, okay, Lord, work this out in my life, is of no avail. And so he starts in verse 12, uh, chapter 12 by saying, you know, lay aside every incommens, lay aside every sin. He's getting practical, but boy, does he get practical in verse 13, chapter 13. In verses 1 through 6, which we're going to look at today, I've entitled the sermon two simple words, live it. Just live it. If you're in Christ, if you're at Mount Zion instead of Mount Sinai, if God has done a work in your life of grace through Jesus Christ, now just live it. Paul said to the Philippian Christians, "You know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, and he wasn't talking about work for your salvation. He wasn't talking about earning your salvation. He was saying if you have salvation, if you are in Christ, now work it out, demonstrate it, let it be seen through your life. Make the inward reality an outward visibility. And that's what the writer here is saying, live it. Just on the basis of what Christ has done, live it. Let it show that there's a changed life there. Show that something different has happened in your life. And if he was, if he was getting practical and saying, "Lay aside every encumbrance," uh, he's getting specific in verses one through six of chapter 13. The things he's saying in these first six verses are, are basically the same thing he's saying in chapter 12, one and two, but here he, he gets not only practical, he gets specific. Listen to what he says, starting verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by, by this some have ent- entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners uh, as, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have. For he himself has said, and he quotes out of Joshua 1.5, which Todd read a few minutes ago, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, from Psalm 118.6, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Stop there. In his continuing to make it very practical, to make it very specific in the practical way, he continues in his, in his drawing from the Old Testament to say, don't you understand that everything that was said in the Old Covenant, everything that was said by the prophets and by the law and by the, the wisdom literature, all of, that, all of that still points to Christ and to where you are right now. The promises of God in the Old Testament are, are fulfilled in the promises to the believers in the New Testament. What he said to them relates to us even far greater because we're not in this law situation. We're in this grace situation where God is working it out in our life and empowering us to understand it and to be able to live it. There's not anything deep and hidden in these verses. He starts out in verse 1 by just saying, Let the love of the brethren continue. Lay aside every encumbrance, lay aside every sin that entangles you, and love the brethren. Now, I know you probably use that word brethren every day in some sentence at some time or another. Uh, It's it's one of those real, it's one of those archaic words that still makes its way even into some of the more recent translations, but it just literally means, don't get all caught up on it, it means love the brothers and sisters. Let the love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, let the love for those in the body of Christ continue. Let it be real. Let it be practical. Let it be something that's visible, not just something that's talked about. Jesus is the one who said, you know, love one another. You know, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. By this all men will know that you really belong to me, that you really follow me, that you are a disciple in the body of Christ if you love one another. He's talking about within the body there. Your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Let the love of the brethren continue. In other words, don't, don't quit. Don't stop. Don't, uh, don't make excuses that I'm too busy to be a... To, to really love one another, you say, "Well, I, I can I can be busy and doing a thousand other things and still love the brethren." Can you really? Because you see, love here that that the writer is talking about and that Jesus was talking about in John chapter thirteen that that love is not a that is not a a, a, a mental love. It's not a it's, it's not even an emotional love where you say, "Oh, I really feel like I love those people." It's a practical love. It's a love that's involved in the lives of other people. It's a love that sees needs and and reaches out to meet those needs. It's a love that says, I I embrace you as a part of my family, and just as I don't want a physical brother or sister or a physical mother or father to go in great need, I will help them if I have to. Then do the same within the body. That's what the writer's saying. Be practical in your love for one another. See to it that you care about one another, that you're involved in one another's lives. And you see, you can't love one another if you don't know one another. That's why we... Encourage. That's why we we, we have small groups on Sunday before we come to worship. That's why we, during the summer months, we'll be encouraging fellowship on Wednesday nights. Come together. Let's just have some fun together and and let's pray together, but let's have fun together and let's get to know one another. And you who sit over here all the time might get to meet somebody that sits over here all the time and, and you might actually like them a little bit. And you might move from over here to over here, and you might move from over here to over here, and then you'll have to be all messed up again. But, but the point is that you, you, you get to know one another. You know, you, you can't love someone if you don't know them. You can't give yourself to someone if you don't know them. And the writer says the very first thing, I want to encourage you believers, both believers 2,000 years ago and believers today at Grace Baptist Church, let love for the brethren continue. Let that be a part of your life. Secondly, in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. If if verse 1 is is talking about a, a brotherly love. The word there is phileo, which we get our word uh, one of the words love for. Philadelphia is the, is the city of brotherly love from phileo, brotherly love. Uh, you know, we, we have this, if that is a family thing, there is a type of brotherly love that stretches on out to those beyond the family as a way of showing hospitality, receiving strangers. We have strangers walk through those doors every week and they come in and, and the greatest sin that could be committed to, their, to them on a Sunday morning is if anybody walks through that door and they're not greeted hospitably. They're not embraced. I don't necessarily mean a physical embrace, but embraced as as welcome to the to the to the fellowship of Grace Baptist Church. We're glad you're here. What's your name? How can I get to know you? Come join me. Sit with me. Let's get you know whatever. Or in your own private lives outside of the body, not just on Sunday morning when they walk through, but those strangers that live next to you. You probably got some real strangers that live next to you. Both in the sense of you don't know them, and some of them might be rather strange. But but the point is, we, we're to we're to be hospitable. We're to share with them. We're to talk to them. We're to we're to share the gospel with them. You know, there's a there's a real uh, uh, controversy going on in the in the Christendom right now among evangelicals, particularly over the book that was written several or published several weeks ago. Uh, by a guy named Rob Bell, and, and Rob Bell wrote a, you know book Love Wins, and, and basically the thesis of Love Wins is that hey, don't worry about it. Everybody's going to heaven. Love wins. We all go. And those in my camp have reacted greatly against that. We said, wait, that's classic liberalism, that's classic universalism, that's that's not what the scripture teaches, and we have said there is no truth in that. There is a hell, and there is an eternal hell, and it is a horrible place. But I think the most convicting thing I read this week was by a guy named Adrian Warnock from over in England, writing about it, he said, he, he ended his article on love wins with this. How does your life, how does your hospitality, how does your interaction with your neighbors demonstrate that you really do believe there's an eternal hell? Now I, I was I was mad at Adrian for saying that, and I was struck by it, and I was convicted by it. Because you see, this this matter of hospitality is a part of our sharing the gospel. And and if we believe there's an eternal hell that that neighbor is going to spend eternity in, if they don't know Christ, it ought to affect the way we deal with them, shouldn't it? Most of us live our lives more like we believe Rob Bell's right. Oh, they're sincere. You know, i got some sincere Muslims living next to me, and I've got some sincere pagans living next to me, but they're sincere. Surely God will accept sincerity. Be hospitable. Open your home to those who have needs. Share with them out of what God has given to you. Because in in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases... Believers have entertained angels without even knowing it. Now, we could spend the rest of the day talking about that, but I'm not going to. Just trust it to say, God's saying, hospitality to strangers is an important matter. Third thing he says, not only are you to love the brethren, not only are you to show hospitality to strangers, but remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Now realize these prisoners he's talking about, uh, first of all, he's not talking about murders and pedophiles and rapists and, and all that. I mean, we're, we're to share the gospel with them, we're to show hospitality them, we're to reach out. To them. But what he's talking about here are prisoners who are in prison because of their faith in Christ. Now, I hear your brains clicking off. Well, it <laughs> lets us off the hook. I don't know anybody that's in prison for their faith in Christ. And you probably don't know anybody personally. But, but there is a, there's a world that we're not involved in just a few thousand miles away where there are plenty of believers that are being placed in prison for one thing because they refuse to quit preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a persecuted church across this world that we live in our isolation and in our in our kind of cocoon here in the United States. We say, oh, well, that doesn't affect us because nobody's going to jail in America for being a Christian or, or for preaching a Christian message. At least not yet. At least not yet. There's every indication that very, very well come through... All this political correctness and stuff that you can't, you shouldn't say certain things. I realize they haven't come into the church as yet to say you can't say it, but, but boy, they sure say you can't say it in other places, and it's just a tightening, tightening circle. But we ought to be remembering those prisoners who are overseas. Why? Because they're a part of our body. Not a single one of them have ever been to Grace Baptist Church, I know. But they're a part of the body of Christ, so they're a part of our family. They're a part of those who who we are to intercede for and and be involved in. They're those we're to remember as though we were in prison with them. Those who are ill-treated because of their faith. Since you yourselves are also in the body, love one another within the family. Demonstrable, visible, active love. Show hospitality to strangers. Remember the prisoners. And then fourthly, he says in this practical specificity that he's making with this, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators, that is those who are involved in 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 sexual relations outside of marriage, without marriage, and adulterers, those who are unfaithful in their marriage vows, they will be judged by God. This verse 4 is a very strong statement. You know, marriage is to be held in honor. We live in a day where marriage is not held in honor not held in honor. It's not exalted. Matter of fact, uh, one of the latest uh, Gallup polls indicated that in the United States, 47% of Americans believe that, actually it wasn't a Gallup, it was a time poll. Time poll, 47% of Americans believe that marriage is obsolete. 47%. You say, well, that's not a majority. It's awfully close. But God says marriage is to be held in honor. Marriage is important. Marriage is specified in God's Word that it's a man and a woman coming together for life, coming together in a commitment, coming together in a bond that, that is strong, unbreakable, priority above everything else, and they're to come together and they're to be together in that relationship, honoring not just one another, although you do that, but honoring God through it we sometimes fail to forget we talked about this at the marriage retreat uh, last weekend we sometimes fail to fail to remember that that God created marriage before he created just about anything else as far as institutions go I I hesitate to call marriage an institution but you know what I'm saying because nobody wants to spend the rest of their life in an institution but but it but for lack of a better term it means it was instituted by God. And it's not a part of the law, and it's not a part of the gospel. Marriage is a part of the creation. What John Murray calls creation ordinances. Those things that were derived and instituted by God at the creation, and thus they are binding not just for those under the law, the Jews, and not just for those under grace, Christians, but they are binding because they're creation ordinances for the entirety of mankind. So we ought to expect even our lost congressmen to somehow support and honor marriage because it is a creation ordinance created by God for the for the propagation of the of not only the species, but the propagation of the faith. And understanding that God created that. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. That is nobody in the marriage bed that ought not be in the marriage bed. Only two people that ought to be in there. And and that's that's how it's kept from being defiled. I'm trying to speak in code because we have young people here, I know. But understand that. God takes it very seriously when His purpose and His plan for marriage is defiled. Fifth thing. Love one another in the body. Show hospitality to the strangers. Remember the prisoners. And keep marriage... Hold marriage in honor. And fifth, make sure your character is free from the love of money. Make sure your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians again? He said, I have learned to be content in whatever state I am. And in whatever state, he's talking about condition there, not... He'd be content in Kentucky or be content in Alabama. or uh, you know, He didn't know that kind of stuff back then. It was, he'd be content in whatever condition, whatever, whatever circumstances I find myself. I've, been, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am because I know Christ. And I know that God has given me something that's greater than money, greater than possessions, greater than anything I can pursue in this world. And, and I'm content with what God has done and is doing in my life or he himself said I'll never desert you or forsake you I will never forsake you all through the Bible that phrase is used time and time again as God's promise to his people I'll not desert you, I'll not forsake you I'll not leave you, I'll not forget you, I mean over and over and over again that's the promise that God gives to his people and so he says "Don't, don't get caught up in loving money, don't get caught up in being controlled by by sex. Do you realize the the two biggest idols in American culture today are sex and money? They're, They're the two biggest idols. They destroy more people's lives. Those two things, right up there together, destroy more people's lives, destroy more marriages, those two things, When they become idols in a person's life. Now, money's not bad. It's not intrinsically evil. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that money's bad, money's evil. Run from it, don't have any. Never says that. It says use it wisely. It said be content with where you are in it. But never says money's bad. Never says that. That that sex is is bad. Remember, it was God's creation, folks. It's God's idea. It wasn't Hugh Hefner's idea. It was God's idea. And and God said, this is good. Man and woman together in in a relationship, that's good. But let me tell you something. Anytime even a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Whenever a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Well, how can I know? How can I know if I'm falling into idolatry? How can I know if I love something too much? And what's the difference between healthy enjoyment and making it an idol? Is there something there that, is there any clues to that? Well, let me give you a few clues. How either of those things could become an idol in your life. First of all, it's probably become an idol in your life if you are crushed when you don't get what you want just devastates you if if you really wanted something and it doesn't come to fruition and you find yourself just absolutely crushed because you didn't get what you want it's probably an idol if if you stake your happiness on getting what you want unless I get that I can't be happy uh, unless I can have this present in my life, money, whatever. Unless I can have this, I can't be happy and I won't be happy. You're, you're losing the whole point of what God's wanting to do in your life. God, as we said in relation to marriage and other things, God is more concerned with your holiness than is your happiness. And if you have joy in Christ, that joy cannot be taken away, but happiness can be crushed. You might be caught up in idolatry if you you grumble and complain when you don't have what you want. Hmm. can't believe Tom's got it and I don't have it. I'm a better man than he is and he's got this and I wanted that. Hmm. God, you're not fair to me. It's idolatry. The greatest sin of the Bible, idolatry. It might even be that you're an idolater if you demand what you want. You know, one friend wrote, he said, have your humble prayers for healing from a physical ailment or from something you perceive as a need in your life turned to angry demands of God? Have your humble petitions before God turned into demand, saying, God, I want this, I demand this, I deserve this. Why haven't you given it to me? Then it's probably idolatry. Hear this statement. I don't remember where I read this, but I did read it, so it's not original to me. Do you realize that a person with God and everything everything they ever wanted a person with God and everything is no no better off than a person with God alone you, you understand that a person with God who lives in a mansion and has 25 cars at his disposal and a bank account that would, would rival the the, the treasury of the United States, of course it's broke, so that, that rival something else. But has everything if he has Christ and he really has Christ, him and everything is no better than the person who has God, Christ alone. He's probably just facing with more difficulty, more struggles more struggles toward idolatry than the one who says, Christ, I have you and I'll take what you give me. I'll rejoice in what you give me. But as he says here, I will be content with what I have because I have you. says, listen, in the body of Christ, in the church, in this family, that's an important family, love one another. Let me challenge you to do this. It's summertime's coming up. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a little more easygoing time. Pick out somebody in here that you don't know, really. And make it, make it your goal to get to know them. Maybe just to go get coffee with them. Maybe to have them to your home. Maybe just to go for a, a burger, a backyard burger or something. Just, 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 just find a, a people, a, a, another family, another individual, a, a, another couple, that you can say, you know, I'm going to get to know them. They're not, they may they not even be like you. You know, they may be very different from you. And, and they may not be people you'd normally invite, but would you just... And then when you get to know them, do it again. Find somebody else. and Find somebody. That's what love within the body really is. I think so often we get so caught up as a church in, in activities... One of our ladies told me this morning said you know you know we're too busy when our child says on a on a sports day can't we just stay home today out of the mouths of babes or, or, or you know just with, with all the activity we say oh we don't have time to do that well don't it make time love one another Let the love of the brethren continue. Don't neglect show hospitality. You see somebody in need, reach out to them. Your neighbors, your co-workers. Focus on your marriage to hold it in honor. And hold it in honor before your children so that they will know that marriage is important in God's eyes. Forget this love of money, John. Let your character be free from the love of money. Be content with where God has you. The truth matter is, when, when we're content where God has us, He typically uses that to do more in our life. For the Lord is my helper. helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What a question. I don't think David, when he said that in Psalm 116, meant it to be just rhetorical. What will God do to me? What can man do to me? It's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews says. Or was it? Paul that said it. Yeah, it was Paul that said it. Excuse me, in Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, that's what he's saying you know, if we're trusting him if we're fixing our eyes on Christ if we're laying aside every encumbrance and every sin and we're focusing on what God wants in our life above everything else what can man do to us? nothing but the key is the real key is fixing your eyes on Christ. Focusing on Christ. Knowing Him. And knowing that He is the author and the finisher and the, the completer of your salvation, of your faith. We don't naturally love the brethren. We don't naturally show hospitality. We don't naturally think about the prisoners because you know they must be there for a reason we don't naturally honor marriage we don't naturally not love money all those things we those are all five things totally counter to our fallenness it's only when christ is lord it's only when christ is master and we are do-loss slave to him That those can become a reality in your life. Let's pray, Father, guard us from idols. protect us Lord from letting things become masters of our life and squeeze you aside Lord help us live it not fake it not uh, not be phony Help, Lord. Lord, help you to be real in our lives. And help us live it. Father, I pray for men and women here this morning who don't know you. I pray, Father, your Holy Spirit will move in their life. I pray, Lord, you'll show them that we're not talking about some kind of moralism here. We're not talking about some kind of legalism. This is not. Uh, five things you got to do to be right with God. No, no, no. These are five things you can't do unless you are right with God. It's not legalism. It's not moralism. It's the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would invade their lives with the gospel. With your grace, by your Holy Spirit, draw them to Christ. Father, I pray for others that need to profess you publicly. They've trusted you privately. They need to to profess you publicly. And and then by first testimony, by first uh, commitment, be obedient in baptism. Father, I pray that you draw men and women to yourself right now, young people. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.